The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to In Veritate on member-supported Restoration Radio. My name is Matthew Arthur. I am your host, and on this episode, I am presenting sermons by Bishop Donald Sanborn. We are pleased to present in Veritate, free of charge, to our listeners by the gracious sponsorship of Most Holy Trinity Seminary. And now, on the subjects of self-denial and love of God, we present in Veritate. The spectacle of the saints in heaven as a whole, which the church sets before us today, naturally inclines us to desire heaven, to be counted among this holy throng that is gathered before the throne of God. How do we accomplish this feat that is so desirable? Our Lord gave a simple instruction If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so there are three things. To deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. The first step toward heaven is to deny yourself. The sentence is hard. It is not to deny merely one's pleasures or possessions. It is to deny oneself. It consists in mortification, that is, in the renouncing of our evil inclinations and the evil movements of the senses, the evil delights of the eyes, the ears, the tongue, and touch. It means that we must put to death whatever is an obstacle to eternal salvation. This first step is absolutely necessary since without it we can neither avoid evil nor do good. That we cannot avoid evil without self-denial is clear. David fell into adultery and murder because he failed to control the lust of his eyes. Judas betrayed our Lord out of love of money. Experience tells us that the sins that we commit most often are sins which result from lack of self-denial, sins of pride, of avarice, of impurity, of drunkenness and anger and sloth. 
Were our natures properly mortified, we would never commit these sins. Furthermore, the lives of the saints tell us how much mortification is an indispensable part of holiness. St. Jerome lacerated his breast with stones, and St. Benedict rolled in thorns, and St. Bernard plunged into a frozen lake. All of these things in order to free themselves of temptations against purity. St. Francis Borgia had been in his youth a man of sensuality and was extremely fat. But when he, he was converted by the sight of the dead Isabella, a princess of Spain, who had been a very beautiful woman when he saw her in the casket, he became the exact opposite. He thought only of mortification after that, and whatever was painful to his sensual nature, he called his friend. He used to call heat, cold, rain, rheumatism, and his slanderers, his friends. He wore pebbles in his shoes, and in winter, when it was cold, he purposely walked more slowly in order to mortify himself. These things the saints did because they understood by divine grace the value of mortification in relation to getting to heaven. It is also true that our ability to do good is paralyzed if we do not deny ourselves. By original sin, we are inclined to evil. To do good, for example, to pray, is, cost, <clears throat> is costly to us because our sensual nature is opposed to it. Praying does not please the softness of the body. Sitting in a big chair does. And unless we mortify our senses and evil inclinations, we become incapable of good. The reason why the saints achieved such great, such great heights of virtue, in part, is the severe mortifications which they practiced. In performing these mortifications, they removed all of the obstacles to the working of the grace of God in them. Unhampered by the weights of attachment to this world, the winds of the Spirit of God moved them to lofty levels of virtue. While it is true that their mortifications are extraordinary and beyond the courage and strength of most of us to perform, they are nonetheless there for our edification, that is, to remind us of the necessity of self-denial so that we can do our little self-denials with perseverance and generosity.
the second step after self-denial is to take up one's cross. And he says to take up his cross. That means each of us has a special cross or crosses to bear. By this we mean that we must patiently and even joyously bear the burdens of adversity which God sends to us in life. St. Louis de Montfort calls the cross wisdom. It is the great wisdom of the gospel. It is contrary to every worldly instinct in our souls to bear crosses patiently and even with joy. To his only begotten son, he sent the burden of rejection, scorn, scourging, crowning with thorns, and finally crucifixion and death. Our Lord bore his cross. So deep was the sorrow and so abandoned did our Lord feel upon the cross that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is it of any wonder then that the carrying of the cross is a necessary condition for heaven? The cross is necessary for sinners since in most cases they are incapable of removing themselves from sin without these crosses. The prodigal son did not think of returning to his father's house until he was first eating the leftovers of the pigs. The cross is necessary also for the just, for those who are good. The cross for the just is a trial in the fire by which their virtue becomes perfected. David's crosses, for example, came when he was a just man. He was innocent when he was persecuted by Saul, when he was mocked by his own wife, when he was dishonored by his own son and insulted by his own servants. Job's crosses came as a purification of his virtue, not as a punishment for sin. In the book of Tobias, it says that because God found virtue in Tobias, it was necessary that he try him. Tobias received some very difficult crosses, among them blindness, from which he emerged with a greater love of God. Idleness and prosperity, on the other hand, induce us to lukewarmness and sloth in the spiritual life. It is furthermore true that every cross is an expiation for sin. When sin is expiated here, it means that it does not have to be expiated in the next life. The bearing of one's cross, therefore, is a preparation for eternal life. The cross, finally, is admirably exchanged for glory in heaven. St. Paul said, Our present tribulation, which is, a moment, which is momentary and light, worketh for us above measure exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. 
This is the man who saw heaven, who was lifted up by God. And he can speak about crosses, for he had many of them, and he calls them momentary and light in comparison to what we will gain from them. And our Lord tells us to be joyful when the cross comes, for it shall be turned into a heavenly reward. He says, blessed are ye then. Blessed, happy, supernaturally happy are ye then when they shall revile you and persecute you and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. Be glad and rejoice for your reward is very great in heaven. The saints loved the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and longed to be like our Lord Jesus Christ crucified. St. Francis of Assisi was honored by the stigmata by which he actually bore the wounds and the pain of Christ. There is nothing greater, St. John Chrysostom said, than to suffer for Christ. But the third step to heaven is the most important. It is to follow Christ, for pagans can be mortified, and many of them were. And sinners carry crosses whether they like it or not. And they go to hell despite having carried their crosses. But the one ingredient that no pagan and no sinner can boast is that he followed Christ. We follow Christ by the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Before all, we must believe in him. This means we must believe that he is God and that he has established a church and that his church is the Roman Catholic Church and none other. We must therefore believe with firmness and without doubt all that this church proposes to us for belief. The absolute necessity of faith is attested to by sacred scripture. St. John, our, our Lord, said in St. John, He that believeth in the Son hath life everlasting, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. And I wonder how the ecumenists and the modernists who say that we all worship the same God, who say that Muslims and Catholics worship the same God, how they reconcile this statement of their God with their ecumenism. Or when they say, for example, that the Jews have their own path to God outside of Christ, how does this jibe with what our Lord says here in the Gospel? He that believeth not the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. And he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. St. Paul says, 
without faith, it is impossible to please God. And despite these clear texts of our Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Blessed Trinity, Bergoglio recently said that proselytism, that is the church's solemn mission to go out and make converts to the Catholic faith, is solemn nonsense. That's a quote. It is solemn nonsense, which means that all of the missionary activity of the Catholic Church, of St. Francis Xavier, of the North American martyrs, and of the many, many priests, brothers, and nuns who went to all of the parts of the world to bring this holy faith to fulfill exactly what is instructed in the Holy Gospel was nonsense in the mind of Bergoglio. It is a blasphemy to say that. But believing in him is not sufficient. We must follow him. That is, we must also place our hope in him. That is, we must despise the things of this world and enthrone him as the one great bestower of happiness and goodness. And this is why the perfection of the following of Christ is the religious life under the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, since religious life is the one great act of hope in Christ, setting aside as they do their entire selves, denying themselves entirely, and placing all of their hope in Christ and in the promises of Christ to give us happiness eternal beatitude in exchange for self-abnegation and for the patient bearing of our crosses and the obedience to his laws. And most important of all, we must love our Lord Jesus Christ. There could be no self-denial, no bearing of our cross, no hope, unless we loved our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of Christ impels us, St. Paul says. We must love him with our whole heart. We must, he must be our first love, and all of the other loves of this life must be sacrificed for his sake. And he himself said that. If you love your mother or your father and so forth more than me, you are not worthy of me. We show our love by keeping his commandments. He said it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We go beyond this minimum of observance of the commandments, however, by seeking out ways to sacrifice for him, as religious do, as priests do. By praying more than we are required to. By doing acts of charity towards our neighbor by consoling our blessed Lord by visits to the blessed sacrament and by sanctifying our souls. The formula is simple, therefore, in this feast of all saints. Deny yourself the lusts of your sensual flesh. Deny yourself your laziness and your impurity, your gluttony and your drunkenness. Deny yourself your anger and your revenge. Next, carry your cross with forbearance and submission to the providence of God. 
see the work of purification, expiation, and conversion in the salutary crosses which are placed on your back. Finally, follow Christ by your attachment to his eternal truths, by desiring him over all earthly goods, <clears throat> and by keeping the commandments and cultivating his friendship by prayer. This, in one paragraph, is the royal road of the saints. And we celebrate their victory today. They followed this road to perfection, and they are there with God, and we celebrate them. And this royal road was first traced by Christ himself. It leads to only one place, and that is to the throne of God in the company of the angels and the saints. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you are enjoying this episode. We would like to remind you that you are listening to In Veritate on member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Matthew Arthur, presenting sermons by Bishop Donald Sanborn on self-denial and love of God. And now for the continuation of In Veritate. Today is the day on which we consider all of the saints not only because the church cannot cover all of them in the calendar of saints, but more importantly, it is to look at the entire array of saints before the throne of God and their sanctity. For despite their diversity of time and place, nevertheless, these saints have all something in common. And what they have in common is their love of God. This love of God gives them all a similarity, even a unity, since it is a participation in the love which God has for himself. Just as the faith is an image in the soul of God's own knowledge of himself, so charity, which is the love of God, is the image of God's own love of himself. And in the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, God gives an impression of himself a participation in his own nature, in the soul, in these virtues. The love of God in the saints is a perfect love of God, for charity admits of greater and lesser, more perfect and less perfect. Just as plants can either flourish or be very small, so also our love of God can either be great or small, and it can achieve a perfection.
to love God perfectly is to love Him as He deserves to be loved. For He is all good, infinitely perfect, and He deserves to be loved perfectly. To love God perfectly is to love Him with our whole mind and with our whole soul, with our whole heart and with our whole strength. For God as God cannot be loved simply as something in the array of things that we hold in our loves, but rather must be loved supremely. And all things, all other things that are loved must be loved for God and in God. So that the human will is attached to God and only to God. And any other thing that it holds in its heart is there for God's sake. And it sees that thing and loves that thing no matter how noble it should be in God, that is, as a creature of God. This perfect love of God consists in loving God without any mixture of disordered self-love. This perfection of the love of God animates all of the lower virtues so that everything that the saint does, even as St. Teresa of Avila said, even if he should pick up a pin, when this is done for the love of God, it becomes a great act. It becomes one more way of proving the soul's service to God. This love of God animates their faith because they see everything the way God sees it. For they are drawn to the top of the mountain and see all things from God's point of view. And this is wisdom. And they judge the value of everything in the light of the faith. That is, they value things as God values things. This charity animates their hope for they tend only to eternal life and they have a holy disdain for the things of this world. It animates their humility for they have a true contempt of themselves and rejoice in being mistreated for it brings them closer to God. And it animates their moral virtues of prudence, of justice, of fortitude and temperance, all to a heroic degree, all exercised in their own times and circumstances for the glory of God. This is what all of these saints have in common. Now, the saints are the standard of the church's love of God. The church is the mystical body of Christ, which means that by the life 
which Christ pours into the church, the life of grace, the life of charity, and by the connection of the members of the church to himself as the head, the church and Christ form one mystical person. Not one physical person, but one mystical person that is one person joined by the bonds of supernatural charity, the bonds of the same supernatural life. But our Lord Jesus Christ loves His Father perfectly all the way to death on the cross. The saints, therefore, are the images of this perfect love of God and are the standard of it. The church loves God the way the saints love God because the church is Christ and has Christ's love of His Father. The church is mystically the sacred heart of Jesus and burns with that love the saints, therefore, are not exceptions. They are not extraordinary in the church's life. Rather, they are the standard of the church's life. We often think, think of saints as being something out of the ordinary and that the ordinary Catholic life consists in a fairly mediocre observance of the commandments and devotion to God. And that this is sufficient. And that is not true. For all of that is mixed in with self-love, a love of the world. And is not the purified high standard of the love of the mystical body for God. For in purgatory, every just soul will be brought up to this standard. The very purpose of purgatory is to burn off the self-love that holds back the operation of charity in your souls. To burn off the laziness. To burn off the tendencies to lust and gluttony to burn off the pride, to burn off the love of the world so that it makes you into a saint where you graduate from purgatory, a saint ready to stand in the presence of God, the all-holy presence of God. So that at the end of the world there will remain only the church triumphant in heaven, resplendent in beauty with an immaculate love of God. An army of saints before the throne of God. This is the vision that is in the apocalypse today. By another analogy, the church is the immaculate spouse of Christ and owes to Christ the love, the fidelity, and the devotion which spouses owe to each other. In it, 
is the saints who impress the love of their crucified Savior in their hearts and who set the standard of the church's devotion to Christ. Christ is only correctly and duly loved by the saints of the church. And the rest of us fall from that standard and must aspire constantly to that standard and beg the mercy of God when we do not live up to it. God has in these times, in his infinite wisdom and providence, seen fit to deprive the human race of miracles, the authority of the church, and the saints. That is to say, he has not consoled the human race by the many workings of miracles which he did in the church's past. We read the lives of the saints and we marvel at the many things that God did to prove that he was with them. And this is a reassurance to those, especially those who are weak in the faith of the abiding presence of God in the world. And yet in our own times we see the virtual disappearance of these things. St. Pius X in his life performed a few miracles, a few cures. But to my knowledge, there has not been, apart from the miracle of the sun at Fatima, a single well-known miracle in modern times. He has deprived us of the Pope and the, that is, we are living in a time when we do not have a Pope. And thus he has deprived us in his wisdom and providence of this consoling presence of his guiding hand through his vicar. And this is a terrible scourge. A terrible scourge for we see how we languish without this hand of God, this father of the human race. And what a terrible cross it is on our minds and in our hearts. We are like fatherless children groping for direction. And in his infinite wisdom and providence, he has seen fit to withdraw the saints from us. Every age has been blessed by its saints. But our age does not have saints. The reasons for this are in the mind of God. My own opinion about it is that God is doing a shakedown of the church to rid the church of those who love him so coldly and indifferently and who believe in him so marginally and who rather prefer the world to him. Catholics who are not worthy of the name, 
I believe that he is shaking them down, pulling them out of the church by this crisis in the church and by a special act of actual grace, he is drawing some to a heroic perfection due to this very cross which must be born. That is simply my thought. Nevertheless, the facts are before us. We must, therefore, prove our love of him by putting aside the world and turning our hearts toward him. Just as a parent will take away from a child certain benefits as a medicine to that child in order to bring him to repentance and a correction of his ways, so God, our loving Father, has pulled these things from us these good things from his bounty in order to draw us back to the love of him. For we are immersed in the love of the world and the love of ourselves. And I mean we Catholics. We are worldlings. And he will not bless us with his goodness, if we continue to love the world. We must stop our daily compromises that we make with the love of this world. And we must beg God for saints, for saints were the ones who, directly or indirectly, solved every crisis in the church. Their sanctity pressed upon the authority of the time to act correctly. They have tremendous influence, the few that they are, and they are the true instruments of God. And of all times, we need them now. A saint is sent as a gift of God to men, but we must prove ourselves worthy of this gift by praying for it, and by having a holy detestation of this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for joining us on In Veritate. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that In Veritate is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Matthew Arthur. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. 
See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.